preach uh, this morning. And the intention was for Brother Andy to be able to take the week and study German because that has thrown him for quite a loop. It's required for his uh, doctorate degree that he's working on. And uh, it just so happened that the Lord worked it out so that uh, he would get sick. <laughs> and so maybe he's working on German in, in bed, I'm not sure, but we certainly miss him. Um, however, I do believe I have a message this morning. As I stand before you, I'm afraid to inform you that there is an epidemic in our nation, really across the world, but specifically in our country today. You see, all over this nation, people are gathering in assemblies, perhaps not so different from ours at face value, with the express intention of worship. Perhaps you are sitting and listening and you say, well, what is the problem with worship? How could that be a negative thing? Well, you see, from the very north of Vermont down to the south of Florida, from Southern California to the far reaches of Alaska, people are gathering to worship, and that in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is who they are gathering to worship. Where you see all over this nation today, we have people who are gathering in churches that might not look different from ours, singing songs that might not be so different from the songs we have sung, yet they are not there to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They are in fact gathering with the express intention of worshiping themselves. For you see, when we gather with the intention of coming to what is no more than a social club, what is no more than us trying to appease our own guilty conscience, we are not truly gathering to worship in spirit and in truth as our Lord commanded, then it is nothing more than worship of self. So as we turn to the book of Malachi, which I would invite you to turn with me to, Malachi chapter 1, we see a similar problem. Really, it's exactly the same issue. We see a group of people who are gathering to worship, but they are not gathering to worship God in His way. And if we gather not to worship the Lord in His way, then we gather not to worship Him at all. I would invite you to stand as we read Malachi chapter 1, starting at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? 
says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts, You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The subject that I wish to preach about today is simply the call to authentic worship. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we gather here on this Lord's Day, our intentions are to worship you. Help us, O Lord, that our intent would be truly from the heart to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, as we turn to this difficult text of Scripture, what is a judgment on these evil priests. Help us that we would understand the precepts which you have laid forth from your prophet Malachi. I pray that as I minister, my words would be not mine, but that they would be your words, O Father. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill this congregation with the Holy Spirit that they might hear. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. In Leviticus chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, starting at verse 1 in the story, goes through the next two verses, verses 1 through 3, we see the story of two young priests named Nadab and Abihu. These priests were well-trained. They were um, the seminary students of their day. They, they had the doctorate degree, if you will. You see, their uncle was Moses the very one whom God instructed on how he expected to be worshipped, trained them. Yet we see that they sin against the Lord by offering unauthorized fire upon the Lord's altar. Uh, Illegal fire, if you would. Fire that is sinful to offer. Yet they do it anyway because it is out of selfish intent. And we see that the Lord consumes them with fire. Aaron, the grieving father, his two sons have been swept away by the wrath of God. He keeps silent, for he knows that what they've done is wrong. We see in this story a very clear, very clear intent in it being included in the words of Holy Scripture. And that intention what, our, what we are to understand from this text is that the Lord expects us to worship him in his 
way. We're in a day and age where we show up and we want to worship the way we want to worship. And we want to sing the songs we want to sing. And we want to have the color carpet that we want to have. And either we want to have pews or we want to have chairs. Or our pulpit should be made of wood or the pulpit should be made of glass. Or maybe no pulpit at all. And it's all about us. But we see in this text that we're about to dive into that the Lord takes no mercy on his people when they refuse to worship him in his way. Look with me at Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord starts off, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. It's interesting what the prophet does here. He takes two institutions of Jewish society that would have been very, very integral to Jewish culture, to their way of life. Naturally, a, father, a son honors his father. Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 12, it's where the Lord gives Moses the Ten Commandments. That command is that a, you should honor, a child should honor his parents. We read it in our scripture reading today from the book of Ephesians. It was the first command that was given with a promise. Do this and you will live a long life. So naturally, they knew it was imperative that a child should honor his father and a servant, his master. Naturally, a servant should honor his master. If, if there is not discipline in that relationship, if you don't submit yourself to your master, then what is the point, right? Look what he says. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? You see, God is Israel's father. Look with me at Exodus chapter 4, verse Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is God's firstborn son is what this says. So naturally, these priests, they would have known the Old Testament, right? They would have known that God was their father. And here he is saying, if I am your father and you honor your earthly fathers, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? We see in Isaiah uh, 41, verse 8, all the way to chapter 53, verse 11. Israel is called God's servant over 20 times. So naturally, Israel knew that they were the Lord's servant. So he says, if you are my servant, if I am your master, where is my fear? What the Lord is doing through his prophet, he is condemning his people using their own social institutions to demonstrate to them, to illustrate to them the magnitude of what they are doing. How much greater is our heavenly father than our earthly fathers? I love my father. I love my father-in-law who 
I'm very blessed to have with us this morning. But they pale in comparison to my heavenly Father, who loves me to the extent that he gave all so that I could live, right? And Israel knew this about God. This is the God that delivered their forefathers out of the land of Egypt. If I am your father, where is my honor? If I am your master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. And then we see one of the most arrogant things I think I've ever seen in Holy Scripture. They talk back to God. I don't know about you, when I was younger, even now, I'm an adult, even now, my parents will inform me that it is wrong for me to talk back to them, which is fair. I'm sure someday I'll feel the same about my child. I think I have something worth bringing to the conversation, but sometimes they just don't. That's just the way it goes. Well, these priests, speaking to God Almighty, talk back. They say, how have we despised your name? Maybe you could look at this and say, well, they're, they're just wondering. You know, they're, they're wanting to figure out what they're doing wrong so that they can serve God better. That's not what's going on. If you look in the context, the rest of Malachi, they do this. They, God condemns them for something they're doing. He informs them of their sin, and they turn back to God, not in repentance, but to accuse God of almost uh, pointing the blame where it doesn't belong. They say, how have we despised your name? Verse seven, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Now, I don't know Hebrew, but I do have commentaries, and some of the commentators say that this little section, if you have the ESV, it's in parentheses, by offering polluted food upon my altar. The grammar is such that it means that they are continually doing this. That's important. You see, it's not that they just did it wrong one time, and then the Lord just drops the hammer on them. He would have been perfectly justified in doing that. Yet, he lets it go on for a time and a season. Perhaps a long time, we don't know. He shows mercy to them. Instead of destroying them in his wrath for their sin, he gives them time, and yet they do not repent. They offer this polluted food upon his altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? The arrogance, they do this again. There's a reason I'm not God. If I were God, the first time they talked back to me, that would have been it. God asked Job, do you send the lightning? I would have sent the lightning. It would have been through for them, yet the Lord is gracious and he talks back to them, they talk back to him again. How have we polluted you? This is the way the whole book is set up. It's this accusation from God and an argument back. So they ask how it is that they have polluted the Lord and he responds by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now when we hear the Lord's table, our mind automatically goes to Holy Communion. It goes to the Lord's Supper, right? We refer to it often as the Lord's table. 
But communion had not yet been instituted. This is not what is meant here. You see, it's, you have to think of it in the sense of a king that offers or that has a great feast after a victory. In fact, uh, look with me at Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 20, we see this illustrated. It says, and you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I've executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward, and it continues on. We see that this is victory for the Lord. And it says that we are going to sit at the Lord's table. You see, the Lord is the host. The offering is the food. And these priests whom he is accusing are the servants. And what they are bringing to the Lord's table is polluted. The Lord says, come to my victory feast, yet the food that is brought is rotten. It is not what the Lord has declared. Imagine, I invite you over for dinner and I say, we're having steak. And you arrive and I serve a bowl of ramen noodles, which is a very real possibility if you come to my house. But... Uh, it's a silly way of looking at it, but it's sort of the same thing. The Lord promises a feast. The Lord deserves a feast. Yet these priests bring him what is no good. You see, it was the priest's job to examine the sacrifice to see whether it be worthy of sacrificing unto God. They are failing at their job. The one thing the Lord requires of them to protect his sacrifice, to make sure that his altar is not profaned, is not polluted, yet they fail. In these first two verses, we see the call to be authentic in our profession. We profess God as our Father, do we not? We profess that we are servants of God. Paul in Romans 1 calls himself a bondservant of Christ Jesus. The word there is commonly translated slave. It is, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. We are his servants. He is our master. But if we examine our hearts, is he truly our father? And if we claim he is our father, do we truly honor him as our father? We are called to be authentic in our profession. I would hate to see how many people claim to have faith in Christ Jesus, yet know nowhere close to who Christ is. And maybe you are sitting and you're saying, well, that's awful negative of you, isn't it? And yes, I'm, I'm afraid this is sort of a dark subject. It's, it's not a real happy text. But you see, the Lord said many will come to him on the day of judgment and said, Lord, Lord. 
Didn't we cast out devils in your name? Didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? Didn't we go to church every Sunday? If we come to Christ without offering our hearts to him, it is a rotten sacrifice. Where you see what our God requires is not simply lip service. He doesn't want us to simply do the thing, but he wants us to feel it. He wants us to give our hearts to him. I'm talking about a real living faith where we love God with all of our heart and our soul, where we love our neighbor the way that we love ourselves. These are the two great commandments. If we do those two things, we fulfill God's will. And so as these priests come and they offer polluted food, we have to ask ourselves today, are we bringing a polluted sacrifice to God? It's a serious thing to ask ourselves. You wouldn't believe the conviction that I felt this week preparing for this sermon. I had to examine my own heart. What are my intentions, O Lord? What is my purpose in attending church? What is my purpose in picking up your Bible that you have given unto me in reading? What is my purpose when I come Wednesday night and teach the youth, when I arrive Sunday morning? That is what the Lord calls us all to examine. As we come to verse eight, we see that we are called to authenticity in our gift. Look with me. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? You see, it is contrary to the law of the sacrifices. You remember Leviticus is this whole manual on how we are to approach God at that time in the Old Testament, before the veil was torn and we could come to God. Leviticus, the entire purpose of the book is to explain and to show the holiness of God, that we cannot come to God lightheartedly. We cannot treat it as something that is pithy, something that isn't really important, but it has to be treated with the utmost importance. And in Leviticus, he gives specific instructions on how the people are to come to him. And in Leviticus chapter 22, as well as in Deuteronomy chapter 15, we see that we are not to bring these blind and maimed animals to God. The whole point is to bring the very best. And so look what he says. When you offer blind animals, isn't that evil? Of course, they knew it was. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Well, of course, they knew it was. And then he says this. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? In other words, bring that to your earthly authority. Bring this sacrifice to your earthly governor who I've placed over you and see if they accept it. There's all kinds of places you could go with that. And the application. Are you late to your job? Well, don't be late to church. Well, are you, you know, all kinds of places you could go. And the point is not to just 
point the finger and say, well, you do wrong. You know, if, if you don't do this exactly the right way all the time, well, you're just failing. That, that's not the purpose. That's not the purpose at all. But what we see is that what God wants from us is not to, again, to just do the thing. It's not to just show up, even if you're right on time every Sunday. How many people show up to church right on time, just like their jobs, week after week, but no, not Christ? What's the purpose in showing up to a church building if you never know Christ? What is the purpose in coming to the neighborhood outreach? What is the purpose of coming to youth right on time and, and showing up to every single function that the church does and, and everything that you could possibly be at if you know not Christ? What is the purpose? Is it to make yourself look good? Or is it because you are offering to God an acceptable gift. You see, as we are called to be authentic in our gift, the Lord says this in verse nine. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? This is sort of a, sort of a sarcastic tone to this. He says, and treat the favor of God after you have brought me these rotten sacrifices that are no good. Will I be gracious to you? Will I show you favor after you've done this? After you've brought these sacrifices that are contrary to my law? The exact way that I spelled out for you as plain as it could be. Go read Leviticus and see how plain it is. Yet you can't follow that. You have to bring me sacrifices that are blind, that are lame and sick. You can't bring me a good gift. I'm your father, am I not? You should love me, should you not? Will I show favor to any of you? The purpose of this, the point of this, is that what we bring to God will cost us something. You see, the Lord doesn't want a sacrifice that is free to us. Sort of like regifting. Nothing wrong with regifting in and of itself. But imagine someone gives you a great gift and, and you, you know, bag it back up and give it to a friend and that friend is just, I can't believe you spent all this money on me. That's so sweet of you, that's so kind. And then you don't tell them, oh yes, I bought that for you. It's a free gift. And so you just turn around and free gift it to someone else. That's not what God wants. Look with me at Luke chapter 21. I think this uh, says it well from the very words of the Lord himself. Chapter 21, verse one, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He sees the wealthy. If you can picture it with me, they're in their fine clothes and they're bringing these huge amounts of money, the huge amounts of gifts 
They put him into the offering. Verse two, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Do you see the principle? If you bring out of abundance when you have abundance, that's not the same sacrifice as someone who has nothing, yet brings something to Christ. So the question stands, do we have something we can bring to God? No. Our riches are as filthy rags before our holy God. Yet some of us think in our flesh that we have something to bring. We often think that, well, if I go to the church and I put in my offering and, well, I'm doing that church a great service. Well, if I, I could do that myself, right? If, well, by showing up and leading the singing on Sunday, well, I'm just blessing that church with my whatever. What a horrible attitude. Yet that's the attitude that we see out of so many church people. We act like we are just giving God some great gift by our service. We're giving God some great gift by our offering. Yet the one who truly brings a sacrifice is he who comes to Christ knowing he has nothing at all to bring. For you see, we are all dead in sin and trespasses. What does a dead man have to offer? Nothing. What service can a dead man render you? None. What money can a dead man give? None. And that is who we are before Christ. We are dead. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to raise us up back to life. Everything we are comes from Christ. And so when we come to Christ and we bring back gifts to him, the gifts that we should bring should cost us something out of love and sacrifice. What should it cost us? Our very lives. God isn't content with half of you. He doesn't want you on Sunday alone. He does want you on Sunday, but not Sunday by itself. But he wants you all the time. He wants you to be 100% sold out to him. This is the gift that God requires of us. So as these priests, they come and they offer these rotten sacrifices, God says, now go to, come to me and, and see if I will show you favor. But in verse 10, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. I'm gonna say something shocking. You remember when I started the sermon and I mentioned how it's a problem. We have all these churches that are gathering probably many of them at this exact moment. 
But they're gathering not with the intention of worshiping God, but with the intention of worshiping themselves. Remember that? I think it's clear from this text that God would rather those kinds of churches close. This is contrary to our idea today. We have this idea that we just need more churches, no matter the cost, more churches. And in some places, we do. Don't misunderstand me. There are many, many places in this world that need churches. There are many places in this country that need churches. I lived in Nebraska for 10, 11 years. Brother Art and Sister Bobby know something about the Midwest. Churches are needed. If you told someone in Nebraska you're a Southern Baptist, they'd say, you mean you're a Baptist like from the South? Or what do you mean? We need churches in many places. Yet there are many churches who the Lord is not in. And he would rather, instead of them gathering in his name to offer sacrifices to themselves, he would rather they shut the doors, board up the windows, put clothes for business on the sign. He would rather the doors close than we gather to worship ourselves, claiming to worship him. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. We have to ask ourselves, are we a church whom the Lord would rather see the doors closed? I don't think so. I really don't. I love this church, and we're blessed in this church that we have people who truly love God, who are truly sold out for Christ. That is why when you come to our services, what do we do? We sing, we pray, we read scripture, we preach. That's all we do, because this is the way the Lord has commanded us to worship him. Yet the question still stands. We have to stop and Take a look in our own hearts to see whether we truly are in Christ, truly are worshiping in the way he has commanded for us to worship. For he says, I will not accept an offering from the hand of those that worship not in his way. But in verse 11, I love verse 11. Verse 11 is my favorite verse of this whole text. And here's why. All these verses are doom and gloom. But in verse 11, look what he says. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, all the time, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Look what he says. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Keep in mind, we're in the Old Testament. God has one nation that he's dealing with in the Old Testament. And here's basically what he's saying. Since you people don't want to worship me, 
in the way that I have commanded for you to worship me, that I am going to go to people who will, whether they are of the nation of Israel or not. We know it's prophesied all through the Old Testament that God is going to open salvation up to the nations. But do you know who the nations are? You. We are the nations. We are not of the, well, I assume I'm not, of the nation of Israel. I am not Jewish. And so the only reason that I am here today is because of prophecies like this. That the Lord's name will be great among all people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Look with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, that is both Jews and Gentiles one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What a beautiful explanation of our salvation. We as Gentiles, we are the ones who were far off. You know what it meant to be far off? At that time, you would have to gather in Jerusalem, right? That's where you could really worship God, in Jerusalem. And so those who were far from Jerusalem, those were the ones who were far off. And who was further from Jerusalem than us Gentiles? We who knew nothing of the commands of God, we who knew nothing about the covenants, nothing about the ordinances of God, we have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ Jesus. So verse 11 in our text here in Malachi prophesies my salvation. This is good news for us, right? But in verse 12, he goes right back to the bad news. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. Good news. 
I'm going to spread the gospel to all the Gentiles. All the nations are going to be saved. And here is why. Because you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. The New International Version here says it is contemptible. Its food may be contemptible. To profane something, that is to take something that is holy and to treat it as something common or ordinary. So when he says, you take my name and you profane it, that is to take what is holy, my holy name, and you treat it as common, you treat it as ordinary It's nothing important to you. And you do that when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. Remember, we talked about the Lord's table in verse seven. And so while it is not talking about communion in this setting, I think the application is still fitting. When we come to the Lord's table, when we come to take the Lord's supper, do we treat it as something that is holy? Do we treat it as something that is precious? Something that is a way that we commune both with one another and with Christ? Or do we treat it as something that is ordinary? Something that is common? When we do that, it's fruit, that is it's food, may be despised, may be contemptible. Think about when we take communion, what it signifies. It signifies the body and the blood of Christ. Is the body and blood of Christ contemptible to us? Or is it holy? We're not Catholic. We know that it is not turned into the actual body and blood of Christ, but it signifies it. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Christ did for us as we take his body and drink his blood. Let it not be despised. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. Says the Lord, and you snort at it. Says the Lord of hosts, you bring what has been taken by violence or as lame or sick, and this you bring as your Offering, Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? What kind of offering do we bring to God? I've emphasized the need that whatever we bring must be from the heart. But I ask you, what is it that we actually bring? What is it that we actually offer to God? Well, firstly, the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews chapter 13. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 15 and 16, talk about us bringing the sacrifice of praise. When we come to God and we worship him and we praise him, that is what we are doing. I forgot to mention this, but in verse 11, when it says, in every place incense will be offered to my name. In Revelation chapter five, we see that incense is the, related to the prayers of the saints. So when we bring 
sacrifice and incense. We bring praise and we bring prayers. That is what we're called to do. Worship God in his way. So when we come to verse 13, it says, what a weariness this is. There's another story that is similar to this. Look at me at 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There's that word again, contempt. And it's the same word used. You see, they take what belongs to God before the fat belonged to God. That's what flavors the meat, right? If you have a very, very lean meat with no fat on it, it's not gonna be as flavorful as something that has fat on it. And the fat belonged to God. But yet these horrible, sinful men would come along and their servants would go and they would force the one sacrifice and bringing the sacrifice to give them raw meat with the fat and all so that they could roast it. So it would be much more flavorful than just boiled meat. But here's the problem. That's not what the Lord commanded them to do. And oftentimes, when it comes to worshiping in ways that the Lord has not commanded us, we're often asked, well, what's the harm if we do that? What's the harm if we do this or, or do that? Simply put, it's not how the Lord commanded us to worship. In the Reformation era, theologians championed what they call the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship basically says what I've said multiple times in this sermon, that we worship God how God demands for us to worship him. And a couple of scriptures you can write down, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 and 14, talk about this. Matthew chapter 15, verses one through nine. Colossians chapter two, verses 22 and 23. Those are all verses you can go and look at to see where they get this doctrine from, this, uh, this principle. But the point of it is simple. We serve an orderly God. And just like in the book of Leviticus, when he gave us a very orderly 
way that we are to approach him. Even in the New Testament, when the veil is torn, he still has a particular way that he demands his church to be run, a very particular way that he demands we worship him. And it boils down to these things. We pray, we sing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. And for the record, so that we can be more in line with these verses, we are working on incorporating psalms into our worship. But we are to sing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. We are to preach the word. That is why we champion expository preaching here. Randy preaches through books of the Bible. It doesn't take preaching through books. You don't have to do that. But when we come to a text such as today, we work verse by verse through the text to extract out its meaning because we know that God ordered his word to be written in a particular way for his people. And so we don't wanna bring our ideas. We preach the word of God alone, not the philosophies or ideas of men. We observe the ordinances. The ordinances, there are only two the Lord's Supper, which we partake of once a month, and baptism, which we are blessed here at Calvary to observe on a regular basis. This is how we worship God. We gather, we pray, we sing, we preach, and we observe the ordinances. This is how he has commanded us to worship but maybe you're like these priests, you come and you say, what a weariness this is. I don't think anyone here does that, I pray. But many times people snort at it. But the Lord here says, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. You bring to me what I have commanded you not to bring. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand says the Lord. Finally, first, verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In Hebrews chapter 10, we see what is undoubtedly a difficult text. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 26, the author to the Hebrews says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know of him, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his People. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now we affirm the perseverance of the saints. We affirm that those whom Christ has saved, he will keep until the end. Philippians 
1.6, I am uh, sure, I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, I'm convinced that literally nothing anywhere ever can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. I mean, it's, it's very plain, and yet we see this in Hebrews. And commentators are split. Some commentators go this way, some go this way, but I'll tell you how I look at this text. This text is talking about uh, apostasy. It's talking about those that come to the house of God, those that claim to have faith in Christ, those that are baptized and those who take the Lord's Supper and those who are full-fledged members of the church yet do not know Christ at all. Those people who come and you think they're solid, they do everything right, yet one day they fall away and you never see them again. You call them. Today you text them. You come to their house. You do whatever you can do to reach out to this brother or sister in Christ, yet they have left the church and they refuse to return. They are apostate. And look what the author to the Hebrews says. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He describes it as crucifying Christ again. The idea you could do that, that you could fall away, but yet try to come back. He calls it crucifying Christ again. This is a difficult text, it really is. But what is clear is that the sin of apostasy is a great, grievous sin who, which we all should be afraid of. We all must stop and examine our hearts to know whether we are truly in Christ Jesus. If you're trusting in anyone else and anything else other than Christ alone, then you are not in Christ. For to be in Christ is to trust him totally, to trust him implicitly, to know that he is your Lord and your Savior and none else. Look with me at 2 Peter. You don't have to turn there. I can just read it. 2 Peter chapter 1, he goes through and well, I'll just read it. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." 
Their forebrothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And so that is my exhortation to us this morning as we gather. We gather in the Lord's name with the intention of worshiping the Lord, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord Jesus Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords, to the glory of God the Father as we gather to worship him. Confirm your calling and election. Examine your heart to know whether you are in Christ. And if there is someone here this morning who knows that they have never believed in Christ as their Savior, then I want to tell you, today is the day of salvation. We serve a God who is merciful, who is gracious, and who I am confident by the power of the Holy Spirit is drawing you to come to him, to make him your Lord, to put faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you're there here today and you realize that you're a member of the church, yet you are gathering to worship for the wrong reasons, then I call you to repentance. For we all need to repent for sometimes doing things in a wrong way, in a wrong spirit. How many times have we woke up on a Sunday morning and thought, I don't wanna go. Even if you go, it's still sinful. The idea that I don't want to go worship the God of the universe. And I'm pointing the finger right at me. You all know I, we work night shift. Occasionally we work Saturday nights and I'm going to tell you, None of me wants to come here after working for eight or 10 hours on Saturday night, yet I do. And so I had to examine my own heart. Why do I do that? Is it because people are counting on me? Is it because I, I signed on for the responsibility of leading worship and so I need to go do that? Is it so that people don't judge me? Is it so that Randy doesn't call me and say, well, why did you miss church? He's never done that for the record, but. Once he listens to the recording, he might start. Why do I show up? That's the question we all have to ask ourselves. And for those of us who are truly in Christ, we need to work on our hearts. We need to pray to God that we would gather to worship him in spirit and in Truth. In John chapter four, he prophesied that the hour is coming when those who, the worshipers, will gather to worship God in spirit and in truth. Is that what we're doing this morning? Let us pray. Father, we glorify your name humbly, knowing that we are certainly guilty of many of these sins, maybe all of these sins. We have all made mistakes. We have all worshiped, shown up to worship for the wrong reasons. We have all sang songs without paying attention to the words, listened to the preaching without actually hearing 
We've all heard the prayers and even prayed prayers that we maybe didn't believe in our hearts or we didn't really put any stock in. We've all made these mistakes. So it is with humility that we gather in repentance. And we pray, oh God, that you would help us, that we would truly be your people who worship you in your way that is in spirit and in truth with all of who we are. Help us that we might bring the sacrifice of praise to you, O God, in a way that is pleasing to you. And if there is anything that we are doing that is not pleasing, if there is anything that is causing us to profane your table, to profane the proverbial altar, to treat your name which is holy as though it were common, then we ask you to help grant us repentance and help us that we would turn from that sin to do your perfect will. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. If you're here today and you want to, uh, you want to profess faith in Christ, or if you want to, um, anything you'd like to do, then uh, these altars are open. I would invite you to stand as we sing the doxology, all people that on earth do dwell, let us sing. <laughs>